Last week, Minneapolis, the city in which Mr. George Floyd was murdered, in May of last year by Derek Chauvin, a former Minneapolis police officer, rejected a ballot measure to replace its police department with a new department of public safety. Did you know that major federal funding for police departments mostly came during Democratic administrations in the name of civil rights, especially during President Johnson's administration, who seems to have shifted resources from his war on poverty to police departments? Hey there, news peelers. Today is November 12, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel Dot News, a weekly history podcast for our news and current affairs. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh, sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Since Mr. Floyd's death last year, Minneapolis has experienced a surge in violent crimes and an attrition of its police force. On the ballot last week for the citizens of Minneapolis was an entirely new approach to public safety, which would have shifted funds and resources to social workers, violence interruption, and various other programs. This measure was rejected by a margin of 56% to 44%. A video report by the New York Times shows Mayor Jacob Fry, who was mayor during Mr. Floyd's death and its aftermath, and was elected to a second term last week, calling for deep and structural change to policing in America. According to the Wall Street Journal, the city of Minneapolis has already diverted some funds from its police department and created an Office of Violence Prevention. In his speech, Mayor Fry emphasized that Minneapolis also needs its police officers to make sure that they're working directly with the community to keep us safe. But what is a community? Is it a geographical area like a precinct? Or is it the people who participate in a city's programs and politics? And how about the people whose opinions, for a variety of reasons, don't weigh much when it comes to policing and its policies? To better understand the complexities of the term community and who's part of it and who's left out and the history of police funding and the question of whether or not more policing in fact leads to less crime and also the topic of participation and interventions of the ordinary people in the criminal system, we spoke with Professor Jocelyn Simonson who writes and teaches about criminal law criminal procedure, evidence, and social change at Brooklyn Law School. Highly relevant to the recent news from Minneapolis, as well as the ongoing discussions 
since last year about the role of America's police department. Professor Simonson's scholarship explores ways in which the public participates in the criminal process and in the institutions of local governance that control policing and punishment. In this episode, which was recorded prior to the ballot vote in Minneapolis, she also talks about her upcoming book on this subject. Links to Professor Simonson's academic homepage, which lists her research and provides information for her many publications, including those in popular journals such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Simonson and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Simonson, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's revisit last year, 2020, for a moment, uh, please. Mr. Floyd's murder became a clarion call for many changes in America's policing policies. Uh, is this the case that those calls with which we're familiar, such as reform the police, defund the police and what have you, were they being made for years on end in the past in our history? Or, or is it the case that this terrible event, Mr. Floyd's death, uh, ushered in a whole new awakening, if you will, uh, kind of like a whole new movement. Hi, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Same here. Um, so thinking back to the killing of George Floyd and the rebellions it inspired, something new was the number of people in the streets, right? It was the biggest protest and rebellion movement in the history of America. When you look at numbers and the amount of engagement, and the amount of, um, I think, uh, internal analysis that a lot of people did as people living in America or even throughout the world about uh, the institution of policing and the ripples of um, violence that come out of that institution. So there are some things that are new and unprecedented about what happened. What were not new or unprecedented, though, are some of the ideas and critiques of the system that underlie movement demands. And what was not new was the movement overall uh, to acknowledge that Black Lives Matter, right? That's certainly a slogan that has been around for years before last year. And to rethink whether it makes sense to use the police, the criminal law, and prisons to solve our social problems. Those are ideas that have been around uh, for centuries and certainly in the United States that have been building for decades, coalescing around the movement for black lives, uh, which really gained steam in 2015, 2016. Something on my mind today is it's the 10 year anniversary of the execution of Troy Davis, who was a black man in the South who was killed 
by the United States government. Actually, I'm sorry, it was killed by the by the state. Um, Which state is that? Despite Georgia was killed okay. by the state of Georgia, despite a tremendous amount of evidence of his innocence, and despite a lot of movement pressure not to execute him at the time. Um, I was in the Northeast and remember very well the calls not to execute Troy Davis. That was before the killing of Trayvon Martin. That was before the Ferguson was uprising. Mr. Was Mr. Davis African-American? He was, yeah, an African-American man. Um, and and I've just been reminded, thinking about that anniversary today, how much these conversations were echoed. Talks about not just this individual man, but about the racism of the criminal system more broadly. Of course, on a different end of violence, right? Police violence in the street is one end. And the you know, the killing by the police of somebody on the street is on one end and the killing by the state of someone via capital punishment on the other end. Um, and I have to say it feels today that those things are connected. Um, Professor Simonson, back then, um, 10 years ago, uh, now that we're talking about Mr. Davis's anniversary, uh, execution anniversary, uh, do we have the phrase Black Lives Matter back then as well? In 2011, no, we didn't. So that's a phrase that um, was developed in 2014 and came to national recognition, I would say in 2015 with the rebellions in Ferguson, although it that's had right. existed in 2014 in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin. Um, and that's how the movement for black lives began to take shape. So that specific phrase um, uh, came after the killing of Troy Davis. And the movement to rethink the criminal system and to abolish the criminal system came before Troy Davis. I, so I'm not trying to mention the, his execution as the start of anything, but just to think right now that was 10 years ago helps situate how much this has been an ongoing developing set of ideas, an ongoing and developing set of movements and something that is not new, but certainly took a new turn last year and a new growth. Since you brought up Mr. Davis's uh, execution, uh, did that execution sit in contrast to the execution, let's say, of a white person uh, who also who would also receive calls for pardon and and sort of mercy, if you will? You mean specific white people in, at the time? Yeah, I'm just I'm wondering, uh, you know, there were calls for the execution to be set aside and uh, and obviously those calls were not heeded. And what made those circumstances egregious that uh, the governor of Georgia just sort of didn't go along with it or the Supreme Court, I suppose, didn't uh, didn't open the door to some sort of a stay? Ah, well, I, it's incredibly rare overall for the Supreme Court to stay in execution, for a governor to decline, uh, for the state to execute somebody, um, especially in the South, which is where uh, most, but not all of uh, executions take place under our in the South. modern wow. cistern, under our modern cistern of capital punishment. Um, the South and in, and in Texas. Um, and it's, you know, I know we're here today to talk about policing, but it really is all part of the same structure. 
um, in which you can see profound racial disparities at every step, and that includes uh, at every step in the capital punishment system. So in decisions whether to request capital punishment in the first place, which is something a prosecutor would make, in decisions uh, of juries whether to impose capital punishment, in decisions of judges, in some places judges can override juries even when they decide not to. Um, and so at, at every moment, um, race plays a part. It's also true that there are white people who are on death row and who are executed. So I think we have to be able to hold both things in front of us. Um, um, we cannot talk about the tragedy of Mr. Floyd's murder. I'm, I'm shifting tack, going back to our original uh, uh, question. We cannot talk about his tragedy of his murder without also talking about the protests and calls to defund the police. Has such a thing ever happened in America's history where we've truly defunded a, a, a police department? So the phrase defund the police is a relatively new one. And if the question is, has a city ever decided, uh, if we're thinking of defund the police as a local call to have a city stop sending its city money to a police department that already exists, then no, there's not a city that we know of that has decided to do that and then done it such that there no longer was a police department at all, which is the call behind defund the police to abolish the police by taking away their money. So that hasn't happened if we're looking specifically at that move from funding the police to going to zero. But what has happened is first of all, in the last year, we've seen some cities that have reduced their police budget, which is a form of taking away money. And we've seen certainly if we look around the country or around the world, there are plenty of neighborhoods in which residents don't spend most of their money on policing, but rather spend it on other ways of keeping themselves safe and secure. They spend more money on education. They spend more money on healthcare. And so sometimes people look at all white communities or neighborhoods in New York City or something and say, you know, if you want to think about what it looks like not to have the police and not to spend our resources on police, um, you can look at more affluent communities and imagine what that could be like. Um, is, it, is it the case that affluent communities proportionally spend less, less of their resources on the police, on their police departments? Is that where you're going? Well, it's hard to break it down that way. So, for example, I'm talking to you from Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. which is a borough of millions of people in a city of more millions of people than that. And um, the New York City Police Department has this enormous budget. But if you look at where police officers go, where they spend their time, where the boots are on the ground, where the guns are drawn, it is in neighborhoods where people, where more people of color live. Interesting. So... Uh it's not that somebody, it's not that the mayor gets out a pie chart and says on the Upper West Side, we're gonna spend less money on policing. It's that if you look where the money for policing goes, it goes into policing places where brown and black people in the city live. Professor Simonson, are there studies that show institutional racism as opposed to individual racism exists within America's police departments. 
Sure. Yes. So institutional racism is a term that gets at um, the practices within an institution. So for example, you could say the New York Police Department and how they might tend to perpetuate or create inequalities in treatment between people of different races. I think it's also useful to think even more broadly about the idea of structural racism. Structural, um, okay. Structural racism. And that would be more broadly, not just individual institutions, but systems in which there are institutional practices, public policies, cultural and social ways that people interact with each other that reinforce, create, perpetuate racial group inequality. Um, and what I find useful about thinking about structural inequality, and it is a term that's actually, I think, rising in how we talk about America um, in the last year and a half, is that we can think beyond individual institutions to look at how they operate in the world. So perhaps we can talk about that too. But in terms of institutional racism, absolutely. Um, much of the studies of policing since uh, the uprisings in Ferguson in 2015, 2016, have looked at just this, uh, not at the actions of individual officers and whether they're biased, although certainly we can see both intentional and unintentional bias in individual officers, but at the way that um, the policies and practices of individual police departments, including the way that people are trained, um, create places like New York City in which police officers are dispatched to particular neighborhoods where brown and black people are, and then are told to enforce policies that target brown and black people. That's what makes All of it these being- That's what makes it institutional then, right? Correct, correct. It's not an individual officer um, either deliberately because they are, you know, they know themselves to be biased. For example, they believe that black people are inherently criminal or um, implicitly biased, right? They're trying their best not to be racist, but um, because they live in America, they contain implicit biases as most of us do. Uh, it's not those things. It's that they're doing what they're told and what they're told, even if it's lawful, uh, creates um, different patterns of behavior against people according to different racial groups. And absolutely there are studies that show that um, among, you know, lots of, lots of different ways. Again, since we are talking about the NYPD, for example, um, there's a law professor at Columbia named Jeff Fagan, who's been a co-researcher on a number of studies that look at the, some of the ideas in constitutional law that are supposed to regulate the police um, and show, for example, that when the NYPD says it's going to a high crime area or says that they're making a stopping somebody because it's a high crime area. What they're saying has more to do with the racial composition of the area than it does with any reports of crime. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about America's police and the communities that they serve, what we were just getting into at this moment. We'll be right back. Professor Simonson, how much is America's police 
still part of the American communities they serve. I, I, use, the, I use the word still on purpose here because our daily news constantly feed us uh, with, this, with this sort of barrage of uh, video clips that seem to suggest a growing gap between the police and their communities, uh, which may not be true or may be true. It may, it may just be news sensationalism, but I'm saying all of this on purpose, sort of opening the floor for you to enlighten us on this. I think this question all depends on what you mean when you say community. And I think that word is going to bring to different people's imaginations, different pictures and different ideas. If we're thinking about the American police, um, and maybe a little later we can talk about the history of policing, et cetera, but just as a basic matter, if policing are, if police officers are people who get uniforms and we give them guns and we tell them they're allowed to be violent and that it's lawful for them to be violent, the history of that comes from a time when only wealthy white men were voting, or at least only white men were voting. And only white men who were born here or uh, were of, you know, English origin were voting. And so well, if we think just about and... the history of democracy, it's kind of never been the case that the people who are policed, um, or at least from the beginning, it wasn't the case that the people who were subject to policing were the ones who were uh, voting for the officials who designated who the police were and who decided what those policies should be. So in terms of the question saying, have we deviated from it? I don't think we ever quite had had a moment where police represented <laughs> communities, but the way that that misrepresentation or gap happens certainly shifts over time, often echoing the same structural inequalities or some of the same gaps in whose voice matters, who gets to participate in deciding what and how the police operate. Um, but I think your question was about today, and it is a different world, even if we have echoes and um, uh, echoes of the same, you know, racialized constructs or uh, constructs of gender that um, affect uh, who, which communities, uh, so to speak, decide what the police do. I think when people today talk about the gap between police and communities, though, they're talking less about who votes for the mayor or the governor or the mm -hmm. president. Mm -hmm. And I think, and again, I'm sort of saying, you know, if someone in the Washington Post is writing about this or something, um, I think they mean to say people in the neighborhoods where police are. Like a precinct. And as, right. Uh, we could think about it at the precinct level, or you could think about it at the town level, whatever it might be. The people who get stopped by the police, the people who get arrested by the police, the people who police testify against in court um, are disproportionately poor people and disproportionately black people and disproportionately uh, brown people and disproportionately native people as well. And because of that, they tend to come from groups and populations and neighborhoods that don't have as much political power. And so when a newspaper talks about a disconnect to, between police and communities, they sometimes seem surprised that people who live in neighborhoods where a lot of policing happens 
are articulating ideas in which they don't approve of how police operate. But if you take a step back and think about political power, think about who gets listened to and who matters when people are developing policies and when people are anticipating how they can win elections, um, then I think that gap starts to make a little bit more sense. One warning I want to give, though, is that, you know, in in my thinking and my writing and conversations I have, I, I kind of love the word community sometimes, um, but the reason I love it is not because I think that there's really a, a way to define a particular community. I don't think there is. I think in any neighborhood, uh, there isn't one point of view. There are multiple points of view. Amid any demographic, you know, uh, young black men don't all think the same way, right? Uh, everyone yeah. who lives in yeah. Bedford-Stuyvesant don't all think the same way. And so I get worried about sort of reifying this idea of community as saying there is a gap between the community and the police. I don't think there is one the community. Uh, Professor Simonson, you oh. make me feel so naive all of a sudden, because in my mind, I always thought a community is a geographic area. Like, uh, you know, um, since you're from New York, I'll just like, I don't know, Upper West Side or Upper East Side, even those are too big for a community. Like, is that has that ever been a, a sort of a defining term for the word community? Sure. We're talking with respect to policing, right? Yeah. yeah. Going back to San Francisco, where I grew up, I mean, any geographic area, let's say Cal Hollow has a lot of white people, but you go a little bit further out, then you have a lot of Asian Americans that have been here for more than a century. So I don't think you can break up for policing purposes, like, you know, police for Chinese Americans versus white Americans. It's, it's geographic, right? Or am I being too simplistic sure. with that? I don't think you're being too simplistic. I think mm -hmm. I was evoking different conceptions of community. I think you absolutely do hear people talk about the Black community, including locally. And I'm saying that, that, should, it, that's, that that's not a thing. I also think that um, when it's we that thing. it's just a yeah. Let me just let me just get through the idea, Please. and then I'll circle back. Okay. Um, so I was saying that you know people might say, "Here's what the black community thinks," um, but if you look within African Americans in a neighborhood, in a state, in a country, they don't all think the same thing. And mm -hmm. people might say to a neighborhood, I was using an example of Bedford-Stuyvesant, here's what people in Bedford-Stuyvesant think or believe, and there's a gap between that and between the police. But of course, even in one neighborhood, um, no matter how small it is, not everyone thinks the same way. And what happens is that when you have an idea like community policing, so here we get to the idea of community within policing, it's often that you get to a neighborhood like a precinct level, but sometimes it's even as small as the block. And police officers get to know the quote community, interact with them, hear from them, their priorities of what they want the police to do. And then by the police listening to and understanding the so-called community, they have a, a they know it better, they're better able to solve crimes, prevent crimes, et cetera. And so that's I think often what's meant when people talk about community. In the, in the context of policing, like who is it that lives in that neighborhood where the police go? Um, the problem though, uh, mm -hmm. is the same as the problem of when somebody refers to the quote black community. Um, so that would be a racial community versus a, a geographic community. And that's that when that person is talking, 
they're only thinking about the subset of the community that who they interact with and who comes to mind for them. So if sociologists have studied community policing meetings and they've found, first of all, that a number of people don't feel welcome there if they don't share the broader ideas of their local police department, if they're, you know, whether they, they don't think that drugs should be criminalized, whatever it might be, um, that people who don't tend to have the same ideas as their police leaders tend not to go to those meetings. But even more than that, there's a sociologist named Tony Chang who spent hours and hours in Chicago community policing meetings. And he found that even though a diverse set of ideas was articulated by members of the quote community, what the police officers heard, and again, this is not necessarily intentional, what the police officers heard and the ideas that they used in their work were only the comments that they already agreed with. Um, and so he did this by wow. sort of careful sociological study. And it's not just the police who do this. Um, it's a, actually a natural, you know, social instinct that we all have, which is that we tend to hear the ideas that we agree with and not hear the ideas that we disagree with. So all of that is to say that one of the things that I love about the term community is that when people who don't agree with either the existence of police departments overall or just the priorities of their local police departments, uh -huh. when they come in and say, actually, we are members of the community too. So for example, one set of groups I study and think about are community bail funds. When a community bail fund comes into a space and posts bail for somebody, and if you want, we can talk about how community bail funds donations just skyrocketed in 2020 after the oh, wow. uh, George Floyd okay. protests. Um, when they do that, it's not that the bail fund represents the community. They don't. It's that by saying we are part of the community, they're showing all of us how the current configuration of policing the courts and prisons don't represent the community either. They're showing us that there is not the community, but rather a lot of people living together in complicated ways. And one of the problems of our current criminal system at every level, including the policing, is that it uses the idea of the community and the people to justify what it does, when in practice, uh, only a subset of the people who live in particular neighborhoods or who are governed in particular ways actually agree with what they're doing. So you'll hear people say, not in our name, stop killing people in our name. You don't represent us. And that's a really powerful thing for people to say and people to do through their actions. Um, this is pretty darn complex. I asked a simple question and you sort of just <laughs> open up this very, wow, this, this is difficult stuff. What is a community who, you know, who is it that the police actually serves? Right. It, it, it's it difficult, but I also think it, I, you know, I obviously think it's interesting, but I also think it's exciting in this yeah. moment. We're having those conversations more than we ever had before, whether yeah. we're having them in complicated ways, like we are now, or we're just we're having them by a group calling themselves, putting the word community or putting the word people into what they do, just to highlight for all of us that they're not just individuals, they're, they're part of our community. In one of your works, you talk about bottom-up interventions 
in uh, the criminal legal system. Is the bail fund example that you were talking about part of this narrative? Yes, it is. So when I talk about bottom-up participation or bottom-up contestation, I'm thinking of ways that ordinary people come together and intervene or participate in the criminal system in a way, uh, in, in, and by doing so, try to just sort of be part of a democratic system in which police, courts, and, and our punishment system represents people in some way. Um, and participation by regular people in all forms of government is important. But in the criminal system, it actually was the basis for having it at all. So it used to be that juries controlled everything. Um, and ordinary people brought prosecutions, not prosecutors. And large juries- Ordinary people brought prosecutions? Yes. Before there were prosecutors, the idea was that either the person who claimed they were harmed or an ordinary person on their behalf would bring a prosecution. They would hire an attorney to go for criminal attorney to sort of present this to the court. Not always an attorney, but but yes, but uh, you shouldn't envision a court as much as um, a jury of ordinary people operating in public. Um, or if we look back to say Greece uh, and the origin of juries, the idea is that the people are deciding. Has a law been violated in such a way that it offends society? That's what the criminal law is for. Civil law, or you know, when you sue somebody, torts, um, is when an individual is harmed, and then you sue somebody. Criminal law is supposed to be a public condemnation of conduct that hurts our society overall, and so we decide to punish it. You could argue, and this would be another podcast episode, what are the purposes of criminal law, and there are disagreements about it. But the idea of it being a public form of law is not really something that's disputed. Um, so now today, if you walk into a courtroom in New York City, you will hear district attorneys stand up and say, we represent the people of the state of New York, right? They're not representing a victim. And most of the times there wouldn't even be a victim to point at, right? When someone jumps a turnstile, they'll say the victims are all the people of the city of New York, but they'll stand up and say, we represent the people. And in fact, I was a public defender for five years in the Bronx and you would hear um, individuals referred to as the people. So the judge would say, where are the people? And somebody would say, oh, the people are in the bathroom right now. But actually they were referring to the assistant district attorney who we called the people. And it becomes absurd um, to say that a district attorney represents the people, sort of going back to the community. The community as if yeah, there's one, yeah. you know, as if everybody in New York City is like, yeah, get that kid for jumping a turnstile on, you know, in my name, go do that. Many, um, many, when I can tell you that's not what I feel. Yeah, and it's many not members what a lot of the of community may actually be against it. So what exactly? You... And so. It, and so if there's bottom-up participation, I'm thinking of groups of people who are coming in and saying, no, actually, we're the people too. So for example, there might be groups of people who do court watching, who go in and sit in public courtrooms because they're public, because this is supposed to be 
a public kind of law in which we have juries, which we don't really is, is have that done? in is which that there's done an now? audience. It is done. It's it done, done throughout People the country. And in the galleries to just, these are not news reporters. These are ordinary citizens that are interested. They yes. sit in galleries and they watch. It's complicated right now in the time of some courts being virtual. But um, but yes, uh, they wear matching T-shirts. For example, in New York, they're yellow T-shirts. They say Court Watch NYC. One of the letters is an I instead of, no, I think that it's the letter O is, an, is the shape of a, an eye on your face, right? To say the people are watching. They sit in courts. They let uh, the representatives of the public know through their presence that they're there. They tweet about what they see. They write reports about what they see. And they learn how the system works That's from what they see. Awesome. That would be an example of what I'm thinking of bottom-up participation. Yeah. And what's one of the things, there are a lot of things that are powerful about it. But one of the things that's so powerful is they're doing that in courtrooms in front of people who claim that they're representing members of the public. And yet here are members of the public sitting there challenging what they're doing in a peaceful, ordinary, and constitutionally protected way. So that's is, one example. Bail funds are I may another just example. Just ask a question yeah. for uh, about that, uh, Professor Simonson. Is that a national organization, or is this something that is more prevalent in the in the New York area? Um, it's not a national organization, but it is a national phenomenon. So you can find court watchers around the country in different places: Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Baltimore, Prince George's County, court watchers, New York City, Chicago. That was just my east. Eastern Seaboard uh, survey of the map in my head. You can find them around the country, um, not in every courtroom, right, and not in every city. Yeah. But it is a growing phenomenon, um, and it's one that I'm actually thinking about and talking to people about right now. So it's on my mind. Is that having an impact? Depends what <laughs> you, you mean by it. impact. That's Sorry, true. I raised my hands in the air as if as if you could see. Uh. So. Um, I'm not a sociologist. I'm dubious about what it means to say that something has an impact. Um, that said, yes, court watching has an impact, but it has an impact in different ways. It varies from in Chicago, uh, court watchers working with a coalition to end money bond in Illinois uh, did court watching in courtrooms in Chicago to keep the court system on its toes about the ways in which it was setting bond uh, beyond what, what people could afford, despite having a court order otherwise. That court watching group was then part of a coalition that led to the passage of a bill outlawing bond in the state of Illinois. Um, could I, can we prove that without the court watching, we wouldn't have had that legislative reform? No, but I believe it to be the case. Uh, in other places, what is absolutely true is the act of being a court watcher and sitting in a courtroom changes people's lives. There is something about sitting there and seeing things that you already knew to be true, which is black and brown people being brought in front of judges in handcuffs and then led into the back of the courthouse while their family sits there crying and hearing that the charge um, was for something uh like stealing from a Walgreens or even uh, potentially uh, being charged with assaulting somebody. But to see that happen um, changes how you think about the system. It's powerful. So yes, it, although I started with a shrug, it does have an impact. But I guess my shrug was to make us 
think about what it means to have an impact because a lot of forms of participation that are more informal are harder to measure. And the frustrating thing is that the way we're supposed to have public input or one of the ways is through juries. But because more than 95% of cases end in plea bargains, juries are not a force for justice in any sense um, in this country right and now. And plea bargains in and of themselves are, are a controversial issue right now. I've, I've, I'm aware of that. That's that's really a subject for another podcast. Um, as, a, as, a, as an attorney that used to practice patent law, I can tell you the impact of having people sit in the gallery, usually in patent cases, in IP cases, you have an empty gallery. But when people come, it really uh, makes you sharper, makes you more aware of what you say and and uh, and the consequences of your actions. Um, we'll be right back after a short break to talk about the militarization of America's police force. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Simonson, one of the salient features of America's police department in the 20th century was their increasing militarization. Was this in response to increasing crime rates or, or was it just a nature of you know, growing bureaucracies with bigger budgets that need to be spent? It's a great question. And I know I've been starting off a lot of questions this way, but it depends what you mean by militarization. <laughs> <laughs> they look robust. They look, uh, they yeah, look uh, and, well, and, you know, well armed. No, anyway, I do, I do understand. But one of the things I wanted to highlight by starting that way is that you could argue that the history of American policing has always been one of militarization. Whether, you know, whether it's, you know, famously um, uh, Volmer was supposed to have started the first professional police department in Talking Berkeley, California. Chief of PD in Berkeley in the 20s. And in earlier. Berkeley, California. Okay. Correct. Which is um, really, was, which is really ironic because Berkeley itself now is so liberal, right? Well, I think it was supposed to be a form of enlightened policing in some way, but uh -huh. he was former military and brought, yeah. I, you know, military ideas to what he did. Or we could go further back uh, to origins of policing in slave patrols in the United States um, or the were, were, um, were of the called, United States. Were they called police, uh, the, the, force, the force that sort of uh, patrolled and dealt with slaves or were they called, were, was another term used for them? They were called patrols. They were they called, called patrols, patrols okay. but um, they were state-sanctioned groups of people holding guns and enforcing laws, which is essentially what police officers are. And so many people locate the origins of policing in the United States, especially in the South, in slave patrols. Others locate the origins of policing um, 
especially in the Western United States, in native dispossession and even genocide of Native Americans, which was the United States military, which is all to say that you could argue, and some sociologists and theorists have argued, that policing has always been um, so tightly entwined with the United States military um, and with, and with uh, the war, war in various ways that it's hard to locate a moment when they were militarized. That said, what has increased um, starting in the mid, uh, well, starting in the beginning of the 20th century, then really ramping up in the 60s and 70s and continuing to ramp up since then. Was the federal, 1960s ramp up in response to the civil rights movements then? It was, I'll get there in a sec. But just to finish what I was saying, uh, the thing that the thing that was increasing um, is federal money being given to local police departments to buy military equipment. Right. Mm -hmm. So the literally the United States military and the federal government uh, providing money and resources to local uh, police departments and increasingly, especially uh, in this century, um, having tight coordination with them in various ways. So you can think about militarization in various ways. You just asked me about the 60s, so now I'll go back to that question. Um, so yes, it was in response to the civil rights movement in a couple of different senses. Um, one, and here uh, historian Elizabeth Hinton's work has been really eye-opening for me, as well as a book by Naomi Murakawa, um, Who's a uh, in the who's at Princeton and a scholar of African American studies, and both of them have shown how the the growth of federal money being given to local police departments came from mostly Democratic administrations, especially the Johnson administration, uh, doing so in the name of civil rights. And so, uh, for example. Um, President Johnson started the war on poverty, and initially money was going um, to uh, community health centers, uh, to uh, non-policing methods of trying to support and keep neighborhoods with concentrated poverty uh, safe, secure, healthy, uh, uh, out of poverty. And within just a few years, um, the policy shifted so that that money went to police departments instead. Um, and Elizabeth Hinton That's in her book from, from yeah, Elizabeth Hinton in her book from the War on Poverty to the War on Crime um, tells a series of poignant stories, including, for example, storefronts set up to be community health centers that were literally gutted and changed by the federal government into local police outposts. Outposts. Um, so the federal government shifted its policies very explicitly in the name of civil rights. Elizabeth Hinton's newest book, America on Fire, is about riots and rebellions um, beginning in the 60s and moving into the present and showing how responses to that uh, was increasingly police violence and police militarization. So in a number of different senses, I think it's actually hard to argue with the idea that police militarization has followed times of uh, rebellion, of riot, or of successful social movement uh, pushing and making us all aware of racial inequality in glaring ways. How has this, uh, we're using the 
term militarization, so we'll just continue with that. A militarization in the 20th century and up to in, in the last two decades of the 21st century impacted criminal procedures. You know, we talked about courts and prosecutors. Has there been a market impact in the last 40, 50 years? Can you say a little more what you mean by criminal procedures? Arrests, prosecution, um, handing out, meeting out sentences um, mm-hmm. has, what I'm envisioning, uh, I, I, I didn't want to outright say, it, but I'll say it now, has the militarization of the police created a backlash on the part of communities that they interact with to, to sort of confront them with force? You know, they come out with guns and the communities come out with guns, or is this a simplistic way of even analyzing this? Well, I, I just don't, it's, um, you know, it's not a fair fight because regular people don't have militarized drones and police robots and the kinds of militarized warfare that our current police departments have. I do think that if we're just, let's just think about the moment we're in. Mm-hmm. where police departments, especially in this century, especially since September 11th, another you know terrible anniversary we're thinking about lately, um, have been using military-grade equipment funded by the federal government to surveil and use violence against people in ways that ordinary people simply don't have the ability to do. So I don't think it's true that there's any kind of tit for tat. I do think it's true that militarized surveillance and violence is very alienating, scary, uh, leads people to withdraw in different ways from society um, and helps expand criminalization, social control of uh, people who are disadvantaged in different ways, especially poor people of color. You have an upcoming book that um, I think part of the title uh, is Safety Means Freedom. Uh, does it does it at all enlighten the conversation we're having right now? Well, thank you for mentioning my book. I am in the process of writing a book right now, and we have a tentative title of Safety Means Freedom, but one of the fun things about book writing is that the title can evolve <laughs> over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Safety Means Freedom or Professor Simonson's book titled TBD. You can think about <laughs> it either way. But I'm in the heart of writing it right now. And um, what I'm trying to write about and think about is how when we look at the ways that ordinary people interact with the criminal system um, in groups, so court watching and bail funds are one example. We could also think, since we were talking about defund, of the phenomenon that also is growing of people's budgets, where people get together in their local communities and say, wait a minute, how is our local budget distributed? Um, If we could spend money to help keep us safe, how would we want to spend that? And it turns out when people are given choices, they tend to want to spend less money on policing and more money on other things. I'm looking at these, I'm trying to, I'm interviewing people. I want to tell these stories about how groups intervene in the system. Mm -hmm. And by telling these stories, I want us to, I want the reader to come along with me in questioning some of the ideas that uphold the system itself. So safety is one of those ideas. When the state says it really cares about public safety or when someone running for election says, I'm a public safety candidate, 
what that tends to evoke for many voters or for many people in America is that I think we should um, have a lot of policing, have a lot of prosecution and put people in prison because that's what keeps us safe. Um, But that's not the only way to think about safety. And right now it's actually sort of, you're seeing everywhere people talking about rethinking public safety, although that means again, different things to different people. I'm interested at looking at how groups are helping us rethink public safety, not just through talking about it, but through uh, jumping into courthouses, into state houses, into local legislatures, and uh, having discussions or taking action in ways that help us understand other visions of public safety, including where safety can mean somebody being free rather than somebody locked in a cage. We're talking about public safety and uh, recent um, articles from many sources, such as the Wall Street Journal or, or let's say the New York Times come to mind, and they're talking about um, sort of a reluctance on the part of police or a perceived reluctance on the p- part of police to act from time to time on situations that they may have acted on prior to Mr. Floyd's murder. Are these aberrations here and there, or is this something that's really happening? And and I say this in the context uh, of the rising crime rates in the last several months. Sure. Well, let me start with the last thing you mentioned, rising crime rates. Crime rates and, yeah. then, and then maybe we can go back to the uh, initial question about whether police are the so-called Ferguson effect, um, mm-hmm, whether mm-hmm. police are not intervening in ways they otherwise would have uh, before the movement for Black Lives and before the rebellions following the killing of George Floyd. So right now, um, it's not true that crime rates overall have risen in the last year and a half, but it is true that uh, rates of homicide have risen and rates of gun violence have risen. Um, So for example, in contrast, property crimes have gone way down. So it depends how you define crime. But you could argue that, um, I think uh, you could argue soundly that uh, so-called homicide rates have risen um, in a number of cities and a number of places. Um, in 2020 and 2021. Um, There's probably one obvious candidate for that, which is that we're living in a global pandemic, the likes of which we have never seen in our history. Uh, But setting that aside for a moment, because we have all lived through that pandemic, no matter where you are. If you look at the city, if you look at cities, if you look at the cities in which homicide rates have gone up, there is no correlation between whether those cities have been have had more policing uh, or Republican administrations or less policing and Democratic administrations. In other words, there is absolutely no correlation between the politics of cities, um, including their policing policies, um, and whether homicides have gone up or down. Um, so any sociologist who is telling you that they have documented a connection between the two Um, I would take a really careful look at how they're coming about to that conclusion, because I I don't think it can be justified as a conclusion. Does that mean that there aren't individual police officers who are being honest to journalists when journalists find them and tell them that they're feeling more hesitant? No, that that may be true. But I don't think we can take from those individual statements um, a broader truth 
that police are feeling more hesitant. There's another gap missing between those things though, which is that we also haven't proven that more police, more policing leads to less crime. We don't know that. That's just something we assume. That's actually one of my questions for you, yeah. <laughs> and so actually like embedded in that whole question of where, where has there been more policing and where have there been more homicides is some kind of an assumption that a police officer staying inside of their vehicle instead of getting out is a bad thing. We don't know that it is. And there are some studies that imply that less policing actually makes people feel safer. Um, and so I, I think we need to trouble some of the questions, even though the answers yeah. to them um, uh, may be clear. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Simonson as we get into the perspective. Professor Simonson, are America's police departments sufficiently educating um, their, their police officers about all these different matters that we discussed? It's a hard question and not, it's not a hard question because I think police training right now is perfect or that there's too much of it. Um, if you're going to send somebody out onto the street with a gun and tell them they're allowed to use it, send them out with a militarized drone and tell them they're allowed to use it, or even just send them out and say, you represent the state and you're allowed to enforce our laws, then we want them to be trained and we want them to be trained in ways that make them sensitive, not just to what they're allowed to do under the constitution, but to also what, also to what they should be doing and to how what they do um, impacts um, broader things like racial inequality or structural inequality. We'd also want them to be trained, um, if you think about something like use of force, not just in how to use their weapons, but in how not to use their weapons, um, in how to resolve conflict in a way that involves uh, less violence. Uh, so on one hand, I believe in some part of me that we need more and better police training. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I am not, yeah, I am not convinced that policing in America was designed or is meant by our institutions and our government to be anything other than a racialized system of state violence. I am not convinced that policing does keep us safe uh, more than other systems of care and support provided by the state could be if we invested our resources everywhere. And so if you think that way, then actually it worries me to focus on police training as the answer to our problems, instead of asking ourselves, how can the state keep people safe and secure? Uh, would you rather spend money on the police or spend it on education, healthcare, and housing? And when you ask questions in that way, I'm more interested in giving money to help train our teachers and give money to have more healthcare workers and giving money to give housing to people who don't have housing. This sounds so like that's taking two different sides, two different yeah. sides of the, of the same question. That sounds like taking uh, resources away from PDs, right? 
Um, that, so that's one part of it, but mm-hmm. it's also, it's, so it's part of it's about money, but part of it is also about where our attention is going when we think about solving the quote problem of police violence. I don't think the way to solve the problem of police violence is to train the police better. Interesting. Okay. Um, we've seen a lot of, uh, sort of counter, uh, arguments about, uh, we're asking too much of our police that we want them to be sociologists and psychologists and, you know, uh, almost like foster parents on the spot to some kids in, in certain, uh, stressful situations. Do you, do you, do you think that's also a part of the problem? I do. I think that is a part of the problem. I think people become police officers. Sorry, people can become police officers for different reasons. But a lot of people become police officers because they want to help. They want to help people who uh, need help because they're in distress or more broadly, they want they, you know, they want to be able to respond to people and help them in different ways. Um, but what if the way to help people isn't just to arrest them and use their guns? What it's what if it's to have other skills and other ways of responding? I think we do ask too much of police officers. And that's why I think maybe people who become police officers for those reasons, what if instead of being police officers, they were emergency responders who weren't the police, who didn't arrest, and who just used public health-based methods to respond to conflict? What if instead of being school safety officers, they were teachers and social workers in schools? Um, so I think we do ask too much of the police, but I guess this circles back to the training question. I'm not sure that means that we need to better train police officers in methods of social work with young people. I think it means that maybe we need to have fewer police officers and more social workers for young people. And that's not about the abilities or the intentions of individual officers. That's a structural question of who we who the state decides they want to give the training money and career opportunities to help people and how. And it seems like uh, we have tested this in our history. It seems like from what you were saying and during president Johnson's time, they put a lot of money to fight poverty and, 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 and introduce other social programs. And at some point they switched and they, I'm, I'm following your example. They literally t- tore down buildings that were supposed to address poverty and turned them into um police precincts if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about america's police departments in the context of everything we've talked about what would that be the teacher in me wants them to remember one question rather than one point which is just to stop and ask themselves that if they were to take you know, think about their local government and decide what they wanted, it's pri- where they wanted it to spend its time and resources. Would they rather that we spend the most money on policing or would they rather that we uh, spend uh, the most money on things like education and public health? Um, and then when they make that, have them make themselves a little pie chart and decide how they think the money should be allocated. And then go look at how your local government actually allocates its money. That's the question or the assignment that I would give my. my <laughs> that's a good. That's a good listener. assignment. <laughs> 
Professor Simonson, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News.